0: Okay, we're going. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I am recording live in my studio at True Digital Park in Bangkok, as usual. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Lau, the managing partner at RHL Ventures. Rachel, how are you doing today?
1: Good. Thank you for having me on, Michael.
0: It's my pleasure. Oh, and by the way, congratulations on being one of the youngest people to join the board of a U.S.-listed company. That's really cool, actually.
1: Thank you. It's been fun.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it has been. Okay, <laughs> can you give our listeners a bit of the background of RHL for context?
1: Sure. So RHL Ventures started out as a hobby by three partners, uh, essentially investing our own money into early stage companies that were looking to disrupt the existing way of doing business. Right. Um, along the way, we institutionalized it to become a you know a GPLP fund with third okay. party capital, and again we predominantly invest in Southeast Asia early stage, Series A to Series C companies. Uh, again, with the same genesis of disruption of the existing ways of doing business, as well as guys who were just young and hungry. We've also gone into private equity at this point. Again, just leveraging off the same team, consumer, young millennials, growth uh, in Southeast Asia, and so essentially we're investing the same t- thing, but just larger at this point with you know more money now that we're a little bit more established.
0: What is it about, so you brought up a really good point, the PE investing side actually is quite interesting to me as well, and I want to get that to you, back to that in a second. But what is sure. it about the investing thing itself that excites you, right? You said you started as a hobby, but now you've institutionalized it. Where does the excitement come from?
1: You know, that's the only thing I know how to do. That probably <laughs> is the best thing to say. I, I joke that I only know how to make money, which is not a bad skill to have. Not really. So it really is, you know, I think there's... I think the genuine curiosity that I have has paid off well uh, in doing investing. And I think this is probably the only job that allows you to ask questions and people will willingly teach you because they have to make you understand to invest in their product or their company. And so for me, it's just, you know, it's it's a passion, but it's also something I was just good at, right? You ask good questions, it kind of led to good analysis, you know, you're open minded about things. And I think it, it's it's one of those things that you know I couldn't get I I couldn't find a better job to do you know with the curiosity and the questions I had in my mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, it hits all the points that I like to like the most. Right, I get to learn every day. I get to talk to the smartest people, but I also get to yep. give back to the community and the world by helping small mm-hmm. businesses grow. I mean. There is some similarity, and I'm curious on your view on this, between sort of venture investing and PE investing, right? It's slightly different because PE is a company generally that already exists, but still small SMEs, yeah? How do you view the differences between those two things?
1: Well, I think the line between venture and private equity has blurred significantly. The biggest issue is because the private equity guys have now came over to the growth stage and the venture guys have now gone into much larger rounds. So the way we see it or the way I see it specifically is that investing is investing, whether you invest in venture, private equity, public markets, hedge funds, debt essentially the same thing and where it is is the risk that you take and if you can mitigate the risk or circumvent some of the downside risks then you know it's essentially the same thing
0: Um, when
1: i say it's the same thing it's you know whether there's a good founder whether there's a product fit what's the total addressable market who are the consumers so like the teams are generally the same the risk that you take in terms of the lifespan of the investment or the portfolio company is slightly different so you as a portfolio manager all you need to do and you have to be smart about this is to you know diversify your risk and mitigate your risk in one portfolio and so when you think about it it's essentially you know venture and private equity is very similar it's just how much ticket size you 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 you're willing to put in and you know what's the risk that you're willing to put in and also, also if you're a good investor you know how do you mitigate that risk so for us we're pretty comfortable with venture and private at this point uh, if you look at my background i used to be in the hedge fund world so you know, I did debt, I did public markets, uh, public markets equities. I also have done multi-assets. So it's been a very holistic view of how you invest. And again, it doesn't really matter what instrument you're looking at because essentially you're looking at a company. And so what life cycle the company is will then determine the risk that you're able to take and the reward that you're expecting from that specific company.
0: Right. So one of the things I think I heard you say was you invest from like a growth stage from Series A and on. Do you do yep. any seed stage investing? And if not, is it just because that's where most of the risk lies in startup companies in particular?
1: We've gone into seed a little bit more lately. One, because we find that we're not as competitive with the big names. So if you're talking about you know, Alibaba putting a check in at the Series A round, you're right. not alibaba right and so the problem <laughs> right now that we find is that the big corporates are going into the a b c rounds and again at the c rounds i kind of get it when you're putting the 20 to 30 million dollar checks you know, right. that's that's still very little for these guys but you know when you're going to the a round then you know it's it's competition right it's everybody yeah. has has you know, besides capital, what value add do you bring? So we have gone into the seed round a little bit more. Again, to your point, there's a little bit more risk involved. We, we then say we're going to be a bit more hands-on with the seed company, which is, again, doesn't really make sense given that it's the smallest ticket sizes that you're putting we're in. More
0: hands-on, right, but... Uh, yes. Yeah, I was gonna, no, I was going to say, but you're right, though. Even though the ticket size is small, the the risk is so much greater that you want to kind of... What's the right word? Shepherd them through the process of building that company. Correct. Because if it's that early, they may not even know how to do that, even if they have a great idea.
1: Yes. Yes. So what we do, and we end up mitigating the risk of, you know, not knowing what to do, is like we we've ended up hiring a much larger team than average venture capital, which essentially means, you know, we assign one person to dedicate their time on the portfolio company. Um, but for us, it's, you know… For me, it's the right thing to do. It is Malaysia, so we're able to, you know, hire much cheaper than if I was in the U.S. Fair enough. And and so you're able to do that a little bit more. Um, again, the way I see it uh, in Southeast Asia right now, there hasn't been a lot of venture capital that succeeds. And so the let's put some money in and forget about it. It doesn't really work in this no. in this part of the world. I think you'll you'll be a bit more hands on. So whether it's a seed or a CVC or even you know a, a growth stage capital you know investor. I think everyone has put in more resources from a personnel standpoint, but at the same time, for us, it's training our team. And so, if you're talking about you know why private equity now versus just venture, it's because we are training up the guys to understand how do you deal with portfolio companies, you know how does a restructuring work, you know what's the right compensation you put in. And so given that the, the skills that they are acquiring now with the smaller companies, we can transfer the skills to the larger companies. Uh, again, you know, it's a lot of these things are in-house training, which means it's going to be very long digestion periods that, you know, we're anticipating for some of our portfolio companies. But it's the right thing to do. And again, I think that will, again, revolutionize the way that people invest in this part of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, it almost has to be done, right? Because Mm -hmm. venture capital and even sort of large-scale private equity investing in the United States as a sort of a monitor has been going on since the mid-70s, really, right? Mm -hmm. And there's been generation after generation of people that have learned and built up and then got this skill set to be able to do it. So the pool of people that understand that is greater there. But I love this idea of actually actively training people so that as the market itself evolves – they will evolve with it and they'll actually be mm-hmm. able to train the next generation too. I think that that's yep. actually quite important. Yeah.
1: And the biggest issue with Southeast Asia is the lack of talent, not because they are not smart, it's right, because right, right. they are not trained or exposed.
0: But I'm so glad you said that, right? Because I have this conversation, a lot of people say, yeah, but there's a lack of talent in Southeast Asia. And I always want to correct them and say, it's not because people are not educated or smart here. It's yep. just because they haven't swung the bat, you know, a hundred times yet. Correct. But if you give yes. them a bat and throw the ball at them, they'll figure it out, right? Yep. And again, yeah. that's why I do this because I want people to know this. Now, anyway, I want to talk a little end. bit about. I want to talk a little bit about how the market has changed since you and the team started investing back in 2016. I feel like it is moving and evolving rapidly. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective in the trenches every day, what you've seen that's changed.
1: Well, people are more open-minded now versus, I'd say, when we first started in 2016. I said, when we came back in 2016 to do this, I had a lot of naysayers. Um, and a lot of people thought we were absolutely mad on Why? doing the way. Well, well, because a lot of the guys that came back to do venture were were guys that started their businesses. They sold it for 10 to $20 million. Think they're the biggest hotshot in town. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then decided that they're going to fundraise. And markets were good then. So if you're talking about 2016, like... You could you could raise from any any Tom Dick and Harry. It was Harry, easier right? for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was 100 percent much easier. You know, was doing well. You know, it was sexy. It was hot, I mean, Muffin as a whole was doing well. And then you know, same thing, right? When the tide you know comes down, you know who has the pants and who doesn't. You know, you kind of know very quickly. And and that was a big problem. And and the conversation was at that point, you know, like oh, I was the popular kid. I go to the parties. I get the guys coming after me, the co- the coolest and the funnest startups in venture world were coming after me and all I needed to give, was to give up the tickets. And again, it was much easier to raise money at that point and it, and, and it was easy. But when it comes down, when money dries up, there's much less liquidity in the markets, then you actually have to understand investments. When I say right. investments, it means like, what are the risks that you're taking with investing in this company? And it's very basic questions that people don't ask. Like VCs don't ask themselves. What are the risks when you put $100,000 with you know, a C company versus a million dollars that you put with a Series A company versus $100 million you're putting with a private equity or, or a growth stage company, right? And again, like it's, right. it's very different. And so... Again, I don't think people understood it when we first started in 2016. And, you know, I had, a, I had a guy who said to me, and this was actually a very prominent VC. He says, I don't understand. And this was maybe two years ago, This was, well, end of 2018. And he said, I don't understand. These guys were absolutely mad. They asked me about, you know, the, the impact of oil prices to the general economy in Malaysia. And I looked at him and I'm like... Where is he was- from? Oh, he's from Malaysia.
0: But he didn't understand the connection between oil prices...
1: And And the general general economy, economy.
0: has he heard of? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go ahead.
1: That 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 also flowed through like how startups were doing. And then I said, well, you know, there's, well, first of all, there's consumer sentiments, which isn't that's 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 not even the most important thing, right? It's basically how the economy is doing, and and you know that translates to how people are consuming, and then you know there's consumer sentiments and all these things. He's like, huh, I guess that's a good answer. I can tell my investors. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and, oh my god, sorry.
1: Which again for, for me was extremely amusing because I did not expect a guy to not understand the basics of economics when you're when you're calling yourself an, an investor. But also so, didn't
0: you understand that Petronas provides around 30% of the Malaysian government's revenue? Do you know what I mean? Like but,
1: Yes. It's an oil company, uh, so it,
0: if I remember correctly.
1: Correct. And so that's the biggest problem, right? So A lot of people weren't from investing; they, right. they came up from entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial backgrounds. And so, for, from their standpoint, you know, as long as you know how to build a company, you're able to invest, which is totally not the same thing. And, and again, at that point, there's been extreme discussions on why do hedge fund investors or people from the investment world think they're going to be able to do venture capital? Right. So it, it's been it's been funny, right? And so. You know, I think we've got, I think along the way, we've seen that evolve a little bit more. Now people understand it's not just about, you know, understanding how to build a business, but also how to invest. And again, I think that's that's the most prominent difference that we've seen. But the second difference that we've seen right now is people are more open-minded with diversity and differences in views, not just diversity in, you know, the you know, races and gender, but more of the diversity in views uh, in a sense that it's not just one way of doing business. And again, if you're looking to disrupt or invest in disruption, you have to be able to disrupt yourself first. And so I think people are starting to be more open-minded with the ways that they're looking at businesses and the ways that people are approaching businesses.
0: Yeah, very well said. Has what's happened with the SoftBank Investment Vision Fund over the past, I don't know, call it six months, impacted the way both capital gets raised, but also the way people are investing and the, the things that they're looking for when they invest. Have you felt that at all?
1: Um, I think it's, it hasn't affected as, as much as our ability to invest. I think it's been better for us because now people are more skeptical. And so the ask for valuations and the way that you know, startups view themselves are vastly different from even six months ago. So for us, I think it's a great thing because, you know, now there's moderation of expectations. For the startups, unfortunately for them, you know, there's no one notch ticket that will continue funding the, you know, the bubble. It's probably the right word. And so we've seen a moderation of expectations, which is a good thing for me. In this part of the world, I say it hasn't been a significant impact. One, because we've we don't really have that many unicorns to begin with. But the smaller checks are still coming in strong and hard if you're a quality company. I always say this, right? I think the biggest issue is not liquidity. It is the lack of good companies. And again, not not just, you know, like, look, you don't need 100 startups. You need five good startups. That's right. about, you know, where we should be anyway. Right. And so the problem is we've had, I personally think that was because it was too much money, people said, oh, you know, like it was sexier to do a startup, which is not a bad thing. And again, you know, like you need scale to have a substantial quality of uh, good startups anyway. But at the same time, I think there was just too many people just riding on a dream that, you know, I'm better off starting something out. And again, it's usually, hey, you know, it's I, I, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do my own business. And so I'm just going to do something that, you know, has worked in the US, worked in China. And therefore, you know, I think it'll work here as well. Right. Which means that they don't have I, – I personally feel like a lot of these guys don't have the passion of doing it. It's just a quick buck thing for them. And so you see very quickly when you invest in these companies, the people who truly believe in what you're doing, it's, it's rare and few.
0: It is. And I think you make a really good point. You need scale because you want to have, as you said, diversification. But you definitely don't need to invest in a 1,000 startups. I do think that curation is really important. This gets back to something that we talked about earlier. People say there's a lot of risk in startups. I don't think Mm -hmm. there's any more risk. If you understand how to mitigate that risk, you just have to make better investments, right, in a way. Correct. And I don't know if the GPLP structure forces, and I'm not saying it does for you, but forces some funds to make more investments than they'd like, and hence too much leverage, like you said, too much money in the system causes uh-huh. them to invest in companies that are going to fail by definition. So it looks like the failure rate's really high, when actually yep. great investors invest in great companies and their failure rates are not that yep. high at all. What do you think about that?
1: I would agree. I'd say a lot of people are doing this for an AUM game, right? And I spoke yeah, to someone absolutely. yesterday, and I said, like, you know, I and someone called us an evergreen fund. One of the investors called it an evergreen fund. And I said, why? And he says, yeah, because, like, you, you don't ever move. And they say, yeah, but when we move, we invest in seven companies in six months. Right, um, <laughs> but but it's it's more of a function of the right opportunity isn't here yet, and so why the hell do I need to yeah? What am I rush rushing for? Investing, yeah, and and again, like your your trend record kind of gives you or tells you know you know, it kind of differentiates you very quickly as well. So if you make stupid mistakes up front and early on in your career, people will remember you for the mistakes that you've made. And so we're very cognizant and very careful about not making large mistakes again mistakes everybody will make it and i'm not saying that we won't we won't be wrong and won't fail in some of the things that we've invested in but i say by and large if we're doing it because we're clearly wrong on our thesis i get it and but i don't really want us to be careless about it so you know if you're saying that okay look you know like the economy is gonna grow you know six percent this year and you know there's a virus and hey we're off our mark by two percent for gdp growth i think that kind of makes sense because you know there's a black swan event that you'll never be able to predict and so i prefer that to happen and we won't be able to do it because of that versus you know we were just overly bullish on assumptions that were never supposed to be there so from that standpoint we're a bit more comfortable but yeah but by and large i think i mean i think there's you know more realistic expectations at this point in the markets
0: yeah i agree i mean i remember back in even 2013 and 2014 i was going to ask you you if you thought the goal for investing is just to continue to create what is I would say pejoratively called unicorns, at least to me, or are you happy creating companies that are like two hundred and fifty, three hundred million dollars in size?
1: So our our genesis is we create sustainable businesses. Yep. And it's and if it's unicorn, great. If it's not it's okay when we look at investing we look at a 3x return and again they said that's pretty low and i said well okay so you're <laughs> telling me you can find a company that has a 100x return i mean that's one heck of a crystal ball that you know I, i'll buy it off you right and again like again so when people say like it, there's there's it's too risky and i say why is it risky they say oh you never know and i said but you do know that's that's your job as an analyst you've got to right. be able to forecast and so what assumptions that you put in is as good as the assumptions, that, the, the, the result that spits out, right? And so, again, it's the same thing. If you if you expect GDP to grow, you know, 9%, it's not going to happen. If you you know, if you understand GDP is going to grow by 5%, and what are the risks involved with not hitting the 5%, or what's the upside, not just the downside risk, right? what is the upside risk? Then you're going to understand how you're going to be able to structure your investment a little bit better. But if you said, like, hey, you know, like, I like this idea, I like this guy, I think it's the right thing to do, and I think it's not the right thing to do. It's <laughs> a feeling. And and so when we look at companies, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't understand why you need such a team and it's a young team. And I said, look, I'm looking for the most the the, the people with the ability to be open minded about, you know, investing. Right. But also at the same time, our approach has been to take out this, the luck out of everything. And so, you know, when people say, you know, in Southeast Asia, you know, the, the right way to do it is to do relationship building. And I say, okay, and then what happens? And then they say, look, then you get the best deals. And I said, okay, so you're you're predicating your entire investment thesis on the fact that you're able to drink more beer than the other guy?
0: Yeah, or just who you went out to dinner with last night.
1: Yes. That and, can't be and a and good I strategy, sorry. Yes. So so for me, that's that's totally, it doesn't make any sort of sense, right? Yes, the relation building is important, but it's not the only thing. So our way is to look at every company in you know, Southeast Asia. And again, you know, some people will not let us look into the company, which is fine. But by and large, people who are true and honest about what they're doing and Mm. they're good at what they're doing, they'll have the conversation with us. And again, it's, you know, us meeting as many companies as possible. And if you're looking at, you know, 100, 1,000, you know, 10,000 companies and investing in the top 20 instead of investing in like two out of the 20, then you know your hit rate is much higher because now you understand the landscape, and it's not just you know how well the company is doing, but also you know how the company is positioned across the entire economy. But also at the same time, you understand the entire economy. So this approach was taught to me in 2009 in my first job. I was interviewing Chong Kong, which is Lee Ka company, and basically I said, you know, why do you guys have your hands in every single thing? And he told me, this was in March 2009, where we had the worst financial crisis and the worst financial performance across the globe. He said, this year's Christmas is going to be a gangbusters Christmas. (laughs) And I'm like, wait, what? And then he said, I promise you the index will be up 100%. And I'm like, you must be on drugs. (laughs) And, and, and this was in March 2009, right? And again, it was after earnings. I looked at him. I thought he was mad. And he says, trust me, the index of the Hang Seng index is going to double. And again, I mean, and, and you go, why? And he says, I've seen everything, right? We've got, right. you know, we've got pharmaceutical companies. They've got pharmacies. They've got supermarkets. They've got, they're in housing. They're in shipping <laughs> boards, telcos. So they've got their hands in every single thing. So if you want a guy with the pulse, on the economy this is it and not just you know hong kong china they've got the pulse in the uk they know it. in the us you know they've got southeast Asia exposure and so from you know understanding that the economy standpoint these guys were ahead of the game and same thing very similar to our it's us taking you know um you know a leaf off their book right it's you know they they can understand that when it's the right time to buy and when people are desperate you buy in bulk and when it's not the right time, when prices are high, you just kind of stay away and say, like, look, we've got to be disciplined with our investment approach, and let's just, you know, just sit tight and let's just wait on the sidelines. I think having that discipline and that patience is extremely important as an investor. So that was the first thing that I learned upfront, right? Just be right. patient. Right. The right thing will come when you see it, and when when it, it's there, you've got to be very aggressive with your approach.
0: I I agree completely. I used to say, like, market dislocation ends up being an opportunity for those people that have been patient enough and that understand what that dislocation, like what the Mm -hmm. origin of that dislocation is. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you a specific question about the difference between sort of private money and institutional money, right? Most of the investment world, particularly on the Hang Seng and in listed stock markets globally, is dominated by large institutional investors. And actually, it's becoming more concentrated over time, I think, if if I'm watching the stuff correctly. What does your team think it's important for private money to have access to these types of deals, this type of investments?
1: I think in Southeast Asia, you'll see more people having private money and obviously distrusting institutional money, not just from a pension fund standpoint or a sovereign wealth standpoint, right? We've seen, you know, one of the largest, or we'll see one of the largest generation wealth transfer uh, in history that is happening, and I guess you know maybe it is culture. So a lot of families try to manage in-house money. Right. And so we'll see a lot more private money versus just going to institutional, uh, especially what happened in the West. Why is it important to have private money? Well, I think, you know, it's it's just balance of power, right? You know, institutional money, you're working for someone else's money. It's not really your money. So your risk appetite is slightly different and slightly skewed to your bonus strategy. Your bonus, I was going to (laughs) say. And so if I get paid... Every quarter, I'm going to be motivated to game. I think every quarter. If I get paid every year, I'm going to game it every year. If well I said. if if I get paid for ten years, and you know, I'm motivated for a ten-year time horizon. Actually, one of the largest developer, which is Sun Hong Kai, right? And this was a joke. Again, this was in. 20 that's a 2012 2013 um okay. i asked them how do you guys see the company right you know how long should i dcf this thing or, or you know how do you present value the, the right. value of the company and how do you view the company should i do like three years 10 years like should i do 30 years and i was being cheeky about it and he said how about three generations right. and i'm like well okay and so if you're if you're having a business, which they're not supposed to be, they're public owned business, but like it's it's a big family concentration of sure. welfare. Then you know you're thinking about it they're thinking about the business you know lasting three generations, which is again the right thing to do, right? Because you want to do the right thing perpetually, not, you know, chase quarterly earnings, then you know, you're motivated to do the right thing for the long run, not just, you know, for short term gains. And I think that's extremely important for our investment landscape. And we're always chasing the quick buck which again is you know some of these guys are building a unicorn to be flipped or you know they're building a business to be flipped out yeah. or to be trade selled out then you know your motivations are not pure and when your motivations are not pure you don't build a great company or sustainable business
0: no and then you end up with wework I want to ask you on one more topic and then I'll let you go sure We both know this just being in the region for a long time, but about four or five years ago, there was a lot of fanfare for sort of government support for startups. You know, Magic is one of the examples of them, but in Singapore, there are plenty of other examples and we see it in Thailand too. Yes. What do you think the impact of the governments have been in sort of fostering or supporting the startup communities?
1: I think they've done a good job in creating the fanfare. And I think they've done a great job in terms of removing the stigma that, you know, being an entrepreneur is not a bum. And so it's great from that standpoint. You encourage more people to take risks, which again is great from that standpoint. But at the same time, I think the approaches that a lot of governments have taken has not been the right approach. I think if you, all you do is to... Focus on just those startups. All you get is you know a bunch of startups. Might be good, might be bad, and you get a lot of startups, but you don't have funding in the in the platform. I think the Singapore approach has been pretty smart. So you you encourage the startup, but you also encourage funding in this in the ecosystem, right. and so you build up the fund managers as well. You know my biggest peeve with malaysia and everyone knows this is the fact that we've got a lot of startup and no funding and it's not to say that you need to put funding into the system it's just to say that you just need to put better structures that allow funding in the system so you know we, we don't have a great fund uh, structure in malaysia so you know if you're talking about cayman fund the first thing people say is oh my god are you laundering money right, um, right. if you're and you can't really do it from a private limited entity because, you know, you get tax on capital gains, which is tax, which is 10 years from now, right? So there's an outsized return on year 10, but there's no returns from the first, you know, nine years, what happens, right? And so you need people to be motivated to take that leap of faith as well. But at the same time, there hasn't been, you know, lawyers that understand how to put fund structures together. There's no tax accountants that understand how to calculate, you know, what's a, what's you know capital gains how do we put you know the daily if it's if you if you pro, if you monetize it midway it's not an income, it's a capital gains and then again like there's, there's a lot of issues where you know the entire ecosystem isn't set up for investing and then you know people talk about you know tax incentives and I joke about it right because <laughs> I said like you know why do you need tax incentives is like nothing's gonna happen in the first 10 years anyway. So <laughs> it's we're, we're, we're not there and I think like the Malaysian government, Especially has been a disappointment from that standpoint. Um, there's a lot of PR pieces about startups and everything else, but you know they haven't they haven't supported the funding ecosystem here. And again, it's not just about putting money to work. Uh, right. I mean, obviously just- that's the easiest one. But it's a lot of things, right? And we're not
0: there. Look, you've got to have a proper legal structure. You've got to have a proper exit structure. You've got to have a company formation structure. All these little details, right, matter. And frankly, that's one of the things that Singapore has done really, really well. Better than Thailand, better than Malaysia, better than Vietnam. They basically said, we're going to create the whole infrastructure around it. And that's going to create the uh, ability for people to invest, which is going to then bring investment money in. Like, that creates a virtuous circle. And that's different. Mm
1: Yep. sustainability. Yeah, Yeah.
0: sustainability. It's it's one of my favorite words. Look, I don't want to take up any of your time, Rachel. You've been really awesome and also very generous this morning to come and do this. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having this conversation with me about the whole ecosystem, about RHL ventures and, and everything else.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.